fine? Can you hear me? Yeah. All right, thank you. I do count it a privilege to be standing in this place and to have the invitation to share the word with you this Lord's Day morning. But I am also joyful for the opportunity to be reunited with you. Um, some of your faces, believe it or not, are familiar to me. I won't promise anything about names, and some of you are new to me, and I'm sure I am to you as well. But we're here to worship our Lord and to think about his work in our lives and in the lives of our nation and in the lives of other people. So this morning, we'll, we'll turn right away to our passage. I'd like to read that for you, have you read along with me from Habakkuk chapter 3, and we'll read verses 16 down to verse 19. That's our major text for the morning. We'll refer to a few other places here in the prophecy. But Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 16 through 19. And this is what we read from the word of the Lord. When I heard, my body trembled, my lips quivered at the voice. Rottenness entered my bones, and I trembled in myself that I might rest in the day of trouble. When he comes up to the people, he will invade them with his troops. Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail, and the fields yield no food, though the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet. He will make me walk on high hills. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray for a moment. Father, we have opened this scripture. We pray for your enlightenment. We pray for you to help us understand what it means in days ahead for us. Help us make it our own and live according to its light. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> Uh, I trust many of you, or some of you, uh, are familiar with the old nursery rhyme, uh, Old Mother Hubbard. So Old Mother Hubbard went to the cupboard to get her poor doggie a bone, but when she got there, the cupboard was bare, and so her poor doggie had none. And if the cupboard was that bare, I'm sure Old Mother Hubbard herself didn't have anything to eat in the cupboard. Uh, just as a aside here, uh, that's a very familiar nursery rhyme. But uh, I, under, I understand from looking it up in the, on the internet a while ago, there's actually ten verses to that rhyme. But we only are familiar with this first one. The cupboard was bare. And that can be a very distressing circumstance, can it? Uh, and it's even more distressing if your own cupboard is bare and you say, well, that's okay. I'll just go down to the grocery store, the supermarket, and I'll replenish my cupboard or my shelves. And you get there and those shelves are bare, then that adds to your distress. Uh, and the prophet Habakkuk is, is describing a situation in which not only shelves or his own personal cupboard may be bare, but even the fields are bare, the folds are bare, the vines are bare, the trees, the stalls are all bare. It's a very distressing situation. And it isn't simply a matter of, I don't have enough, I'd like to have more. It's a situation where I have nothing. It's not like uh, sometimes we might say, you know, I, I'd, I'd like to have a new pair of shoes. I'd like to have a new car. I'd like to have uh, a, a better home. I'd like to have a better this, that, or the other thing. I'd like to have a, well, this is a situation where I'd like to have something to eat. 
and people can get in desperate straits. And he's describing, of course, a situation which is born out of warfare, as we're going to see in a moment. Uh, but we'll look back here at the earlier part of the book as well, because we want to get some background. Who is Habakkuk? What is the situation in which he is prophesying? Well, Habakkuk is a Jewish prophet. He's prophesying uh, about the time of the end of the kingdom of Judah. He's a contemporary with Jeremiah. So if you know your history, um, things are looking bad for the kingdom of Judah. And so he is sent to prophesy. And one of the things he does here is, first of all, he pleads for God to deliver his people and deliver him. He's personally distressed by the condition of his people. And in the first four verses of chapter 1, he, he lays out some of the conditions there, what's going on in his homeland. And he wants God to deliver, he wants God to notice, he wants God to judge his people, correct this situation. Uh, and so he's, he's, he's complaining about, if we look at verse, uh, verses 1 to 4 for just a moment in chapter 1, we'll start with verse 2. Oh Lord, how long shall I cry, and you will not hear, uh, even cry out to you, violence, you see, don't you see the violence? Will you not save? Why do you, not sh why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble? For the plundering and violence are before me. There is strife and contention arises. Therefore the law is powerless. Justice never goes forth. And the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore perverse judgment proceeds. Sound familiar? He's talking about his own homeland, his own nation, his own people. So he's crying out to God. And uh, God will reply to his complaints. God will take notice of what he is praying. And he assures Habakkuk that he is indeed planning to do something about all this. However, the approach that God is going to take is probably not what the prophet was actually praying for or expecting. And so that brings us to another point here. Uh, the surprising nature of God's judgment. The surprising nature of God's judgment. Verses 5 and 6 of chapter 1. Look among the nations and watch. Be utterly astounded. I will work a work in your days. I'm going to do something which you would not believe though it were told you. For indeed I am raising up the Chaldeans, a bitter and hasty nation which marches through the, earth, through the breadth of the earth to possess dwelling places that are not theirs. They are terrible, dreadful. Their judgment from the dignity proceeds from themselves. They just do what they want. It says, I'm bringing them against this people that you're complaining about and praying about. And I see all this, and I'm now going to act. I'm going to send the Chaldeans, or as we might more commonly know them as the Babylonians are coming. Um, they are going to be my instrument of judgment on this kingdom of Judah. Um, now, this is a bit too much for the prophet Habakkuk. He's wondering, what's this all about? Uh, how you, how, why are you doing it this way? He has confusion. He has consternation. He has some complaints about the way God is doing this. He's, he's querying. These people are really bad, God, the Babylonians. And, of course, the Lord himself knows this because uh, he, he, he tells him, he tells Habakkuk, who these people are, as if he didn't know. Um, so to reply to the uh, prophet, he replies, I think, in two different ways. And we see that mostly in the end of chapter 1 and down into chapter 2. And we won't go into the details there. But he basically says, I'm going to judge all the wicked. 
There's five woes that he then lays out in chapter 2 mostly against wicked evildoers. Now, at first I was thinking this through and said, okay, here's God's reply to the prophet. He says, don't worry about the Babylonians. They will get theirs, quote unquote. They're going to be judged because they're wicked. It reminds me a bit of uh, what happened in, with Isaiah earlier in Jewish history, and, and it was the Assyrians then. And God assured Isaiah, don't worry, they, I know they're coming, they're being used by me, they're an axe, and, and I'm just using it as a tool, and when I'm done, they're going to be judged, because in their own minds, they're powerful and great, and they're doing this on their own, they have wicked intentions. He says the same thing here in chapter 1 about about the Babylonians. They have wicked intentions, they think they're something, and they give all the credit, verse 11, chapter 1, they give it all to their gods. Why are we so powerful? Because of our idols. That's why we're doing this. So I'm taking note of that. But upon some further reflection, I wondered, is God also painting for the prophet Habakkuk a picture of his own people? But yeah, he's going to judge Babylon in turn and in time, having used them, but the description here in chapter 2, uh, parts of it, I wonder if Habakkuk is seeing his own people. Who are the idol worshippers? Well, it's not just the Babylonians. Judah is worshipping idols. If you read the prophets other than Habakkuk at this time, you'll see they're always complaining about the injustices in the Judean kingdom. There's, there's bloodlust. There's uh, in immorality. There's false worship. There's taking advantage of the poor. There's, there's looting. There's fraud. There's all these societal ills in the kingdom of Judah. And so it is, and they're, of course, they're idol worshipers. So it isn't just the Babylonian idol worshipers who deserve judgment. God may be saying to the prophet, he said, Judah deserves this. That's your answer, Habakkuk, why this is happening. There's no repentance. There's no contrition. And this is the way I'm going to act. Now, yeah, it's probably a conundrum that I'm using one of your mortal enemies or the evil superpower of the day to do this, but you, you've called it basically upon yourselves. Um, there is something here uh, that I'd like to draw your attention to in, in chapter 2, verse 20. Uh, maybe we'll go back up to verse 19 of chapter 2. Notice the contrast with idol worship and the worship of Yahweh, that the, the prophet, or this is the Lord speaking. Uh, Woe to him who says to wood, awake, to the silent stone, arise, it shall teach. Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and uh, in it there is no breath at all, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. So the scene of idol worship is the idol worshipers are making all the noise. The idol worshipers are doing all the talking. The idols are silent. They have nothing to say. All the talking is from the worshipers. And then he contrasts, he says, but the Lord, the Lord who speaks, he's in his temple. You keep silent before him because he's got something to say. There's quite a contrast there. And uh, that's why one of the reasons why idolatry is so foolish and a dead end. So back to Habakkuk's situation. God is, is telling him, I'm going to do this judgment. It's shocking to you, but it has to be done. And thirdly, we'll look at different reactions now of the prophet, which takes us to our passage there in chapter 3. Uh, 
the reactions of the prophet to God's announced judgment. And uh, the first thing to notice, I think, is that there is a trembling in verse 16. Or we could say it's a physical reaction to what he's heard. Uh, It may be shocking having heard it, but then the more he dwells upon it, he starts to have these reactions to what's going to happen. And God himself is doing it to us. And so we have this trembling in chapter 16, excuse me, verse 16. When I heard, my body trembled, my lips quivered, rottenness entered my bones, I trembled in myself, and I wanted to have rest from the coming trouble. He's thinking about these things and he's having a physical reaction to it. Has that ever happened to you? You get some news, either it was a shock at the first hearing of it, or even beyond that, once you start thinking about it, you you get these awful feelings in the pit of your stomach. Your mouth goes dry. Uh, You lose your color. There's all these physical reactions to horrible news and horrible events. And the prophet says, that's what's happened to me. I I just can't comprehend how this is happening. Earlier, he had pleaded with the Lord in his wrath to remember mercy. And now he has this sinking suspicion or it's coming to dawn on him. There is going to be no mercy in this situation. Now when he figures, when, he, when that dawns on him, now he's having some real trouble digesting this news, or this reality. Um, that happens to people in their personal lives. It can happen to people in churches. It can happen to people in countries. When it dawns on them that uh, a calamity is afoot and there's no avoiding it. So that's one reaction. He has a physical reaction to this. And then secondly, notice in verses 17 and 18, the classic text here of an affirmation of faith in the midst of calamity and distress and hopelessness and joylessness. Verses 16 and seven, 17 and 18, he says, Though the fig tree may not blossom, we read that earlier, the fruit on the vines is not there, the labor of the olive or the the, the labor of getting the olives processed and the, and the oil and all the goodness of the olives, that's not there. Uh, there's no flocks. There's no herds in the stall. This is a description of privation common in times of war and in invasion. This has been repeated throughout history. And if we search the globe, even as we sit here today and speak, we could probably find places where this is true. There's famine in the world. A lot of the times famine is a, is a byproduct of conflict. Uh, and so he's, he's, there's, there's no resources. There's no joy here. It's very, very grim. It's a grim situation. Resources are depleted. There's a complete comprehensive breakdown of normality. Nothing's normal. It's a very distressing time. It'd be like us, as we said earlier, going to the cupboard and we find nothing there and there's nothing in the stores and there's no gas in the gas pumps. Everything that you just get up in the morning expecting to be there isn't there. And where do we turn? What do we do in these situations? Uh, There's nothing left for man or beast. And um, I guess we could go a step further and say there aren't any beasts even because the beasts have... Probably, he doesn't say it here in the text, but I have to assume that there's no beast because they've all been eaten. You, 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 all through history, if you read the, about sieges, some of the first things that happen is they, they raid the, once it gets desperate enough, they go to the zoos and they eat the zoo animals. Then the dogs and the cats disappear. 
and the rats disappear. And pretty soon there aren't any of them either to eat. All the vegetation disappears. Anything that can be eaten. Hungry people are desperate people. And uh, they get very desperate because they're hopeless. They don't know where to, what to, where to turn. That's one of the things that goes on. Uh, and, um, you know, at, at present, in our country, in our society, we're, we're not at the stage where Habakkuk was at. But that's no guarantee that we won't ever be there. Next week, next month, uh, next year, maybe, maybe not. It's really within the realm of possibility. We never think of it because we have it pretty easy. But... Things can change overnight. I was talking with Brother uh, Eli this morning about things. And it could e wake up tomorrow and, there's, and the stock market has crashed. Banks are closed. There's runs on the bank. You can't cash checks, any of those kinds. Of, what are we going to do? Um, am I predicting that's going to happen? No, I'm not. Am I saying it could happen? Yes, I am. <laughs> and it's only prudent for us to prepare. Well, how do we prepare? We'll get to that in a, in a moment. But... Um, it's a bleak picture. Now, our worries maybe are not the same as Habakkuk's in this situation. But if we were in his situation, they would be. But right now, what are our worries as Americans or even as American Christians? Well, we're worrying about inflation. We're worrying about interest rates. We're worrying about uh, disease and the comeback of COVID and what all that might mean. We're worrying about... Um, uh, supply chain issues. We're worrying about warfare. You know, wars are happening all over the world. Um, are we going to have our turn to be attacked? You know, these are the kind of things that plague people's minds. Uh, what about my retirement? Am I going to live to retirement age? And if I do, am I going to have anything to live on when I get to retirement age? These are things that are pressing on people's minds, even Christians. But notice there's a change here. He goes from this to trusting. Beyond even trusting, we could say he goes to rejoicing. Now, he's not rejoicing in the circumstances, obviously. That would be, you know, irrational. But he rejoices in the Lord. Verse 18, yet, yet, I will rejoice in, even in these circumstances. Notice what he doesn't say, too. He doesn't say, well, therefore, I have to grin and bear it. Well, therefore, I have to just grip my teeth and get through this somehow or other. That's not his posture. That's not his attitude. It's, no, I'm going to rejoice. Well, of course, not in these circumstances. I'm taking my eyes off of those and putting them on the Lord, the God of my salvation. I will rejoice in Yahweh. I will rejoice in the Lord. I will rejoice in, I will have joy in the God of my salvation. If you possess eternal life, if you possess a home in heaven, if you possess a God who is with you, and as we sang about, our God will do what's right. If you really believe that and trust that, then you're going to have this attitude of Habakkuk. I will rejoice in the Lord no matter what the circumstances. Um, and so that's where he goes. And I think that that's something we could learn for our own times, obviously, brothers and sisters. Um, I was uh, thinking about his attitude here, and I wonder if he's thinking, too, as a Jewish prophet, 
and thinking about Yahweh, he says, you know, my Yahweh, my Lord, my God, not like the dumb idols, he speaks and he has spoken promises. He speaks and he has spoken a covenant. And he keeps his covenant and he keeps his promise. So therefore I can rely on those things. Maybe he's thinking about the things that Job thought about in one context. And he says, though he slay me, yet I will trust in him. And then uh, I think one of the Psalms says, um, Psalm 4, verse 7 perhaps, where he says, the writer says that, I rejoice more than in their time of the abundance of their wine and their grain. That's a paraphrase. You know, I look at these pagans, I look at my neighbors, and they are happy when they have abundance. Their wine's coming in, and uh, the grain crop is good, bumper crop, and so they're going to be wealthy, they're going to be rich, they're going to be set, and they are happy. Okay? So, but I rejoice even more than that situation when I contemplate the Lord and my relationship with Him and His love for me. So he has trembled. He had that physical reaction to this event. But then he, he turns to trust. And even beyond trusting, to rejoicing in the Lord. And then lastly, verse 19, we can notice triumphing. He triumphs over the circumstances. Um, he declares that God, in verse 19, is my strength. The Lord God is my strength. Uh, he will make my feet like a deer's feet, or maybe you have hind or gazelle in your translations. This is a, an animal fleet of foot. Can, can traipse and jump and leap across the mountains high up beyond all of this that he has just painted, that picture of bleak desolation. He said, I rise above it as a, as a deer on the mountaintops. He said, I can do that because of my faith in God. He's my strength. He will make me walk on high hills. I go up above all this. I'm not ignorant of it. I don't ignore it. But I rise above it because I have the strength of the Lord. And the joy of the Lord is my strength. Circumstances are indeed challenging. That is a fact. His circumstances surely, maybe your own, in your own life right now, are very challenging. Circumstances are challenging. God is good, God is great, God is sovereign. These also are facts which we should put our faith in and rely upon. So that is the prophet Habakkuk's experience here when God tells him what he's going to do. He started praying for his people. And he was right to do that. And, he, and, he, and he, he had a prophetic voice against his people or about his people. It calls God's attention to it. I think we do here too in our prayer meetings, like many churches around our country are doing. But notice what happens. God gives him an unexpected reply as to how he's going to deal with this. And he tells him to be prepared for it. And um, I think that we could, uh, just a few words of exhortation to you here and some application thinking about what happened here with Habakkuk and his people and the Babylonians. We just have to keep in mind for ourselves, brothers and sisters, that our joy does not depend upon outward prosperity. If you have prosperity, praise the Lord for it. Put it to use for the kingdom. If you can make more money than you already have, go ahead and do it if you're doing it for the Lord. Nothing wrong with that. But don't make that your source of joy. Don't make that your trust. It's a tool. 
It's a, it's a situation God gives you for His glory and honor. Uh, our, our joy does not depend upon the absence of afflictions and difficulties. Our joy is not tied to having an easy life. Now in seasons of ease and seasons of plenty, we can glorify God in those too, as well as in the difficult times in trusting Him. But that's not the source of our joy. As Nehemiah had said, the joy of the Lord is our strength. Paul wrote in Philippians 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say, rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. We must remember also the, the words of our Lord Jesus Christ in this context. Bring it in. Um, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? So where's the priority? Don't be thinking about worldly things and accomplish and acquisition so much as where is my soul's safety? Where is my soul's joy? Matthew 6, the Lord says, don't worry about your food. Don't worry about your clothes and your drinks. God, God will supply those things for you. you know, put my kingdom first. Seek my kingdom's interests. Whether in weal or woe, Seek my kingdom's interests. And as I said earlier, we're not in Habakkuk's situation yet. Maybe we never will be. Uh, however, if present trends continue in our nation, I'm not going to be surprised if we don't face very similar things. Um, so the question is, have we prepared ourselves? Have we prepared ourselves? And I don't mean have we stocked the cupboards. <laughs> Uh, have we stocked the fridge and the freezer? Have we put money away? Are we sure we bought enough gold, guns, ammo, all those things? They're all, you know, in their own place. They're, they're prudent measures. What I'm referring to is our faith. Could you or I right now echo the expression of faith that Habakkuk gives us here in, in these verses, chapter, uh, verse 17, verse 18, verse 19? Um, I'm confident personally that if everything I have ever known, everything I have, were to be swept away in one calamity suddenly, that I could easily um, copy the prophet, echo his sentiments in fear, in distress, in confusion. I could think and feel and talk like the prophet Habakkuk under those circumstances. But... Could I then, like him, transition from that to this trusting and rejoicing in the Lord under such circumstances? I, I think for many of us, I won't speak for you, but I would have to say, I'll have to wait and see. I'd like to think I would, but I won't, I won't if I never prepare for that. If I don't start trusting him now with everything, even the future. So are we preparing our souls for such a time as Habakkuk faced? We live in uncertain and strange times. Um, it's only wise for us to consider these things. Um, another thing I will say is we, we may complain to God or at least pray to him about our nation's sins, as he did in chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. But are we also, like Habakkuk, ready to accept, in the end, what the, what the Lord decides to do in response to our prayers? We draw attention to our nation's sins. 
our people's sins, let alone our own or our church's sins. We draw attention to those things to the Lord. We say, Lord, look. Look, see. Violence, injustice, fraud, all these other things. We draw your attention. Do something about this. What are we thinking he's going to do? What we want him to do probably is send revival and reformation. And we can pray for that too. Make that an explicit prayer request. But what if he decides to say to us, like he said to uh, Habakkuk, uh, the die is cast. I'm going to send this unexpected, uh, very uh, surprising and astounding answer. Um, So like instead of Chaldeans, like Judah got, we get communists. I mean, would God do that to us? We don't know. But he might. So even if our cupboards and gas tanks, whatever bank accounts are empty, let's determine, no matter how empty anything is, that our hearts will be full. Full of joy, trust, and confidence. So if I have an empty fridge, that's a problem. But if my heart is empty, that's a bigger problem. Our, God is our salvation. He's our strength. He will enable us to rise above, dwell in the high places like this deer. If we ask him to enable us to do that, if he opens a way for us and helps us, he wants us to do this. Um, after all, hasn't he already seated us in the heavenly places in Christ, Paul says, Ephesians chapter 1. And so um, when, I, when I read that text and was thinking about that, it's something Habakkuk doesn't sound this note in what he writes, but God has set us in heavenly places, us the church, us the body of Christ. It makes me think that for us anyway, to prepare for and be ready when things go sideways, it's, it's just such a wonderful thing to realize if you have a sound, biblical, loving, warm church family, what a support that would be. What a support it is, what a help it is uh, to, have a, to have a family like the family of God and to know each other and love each other and look after each other's interests even now so that when the hard times come, you know you're not alone, you're not abandoned. Uh, that reminded me of what the Lord says in Mark 10. He says, uh, I think it was Peter asked him, so what do we have? We've left everything to follow you and serve the kingdom. What are we going to get? And the Lord doesn't say, that's not, you know, don't worry about that. No, he gives them an answer. He says, you're going to get multiplied houses, lands, brothers, sisters. No one's forsaken anything they won't be repaid for or rewarded with. You, you, your family doesn't want anything to do with you? You've got another family. Your parents have abandoned you? You have other parents. You, you know, brothers and sisters won't have anything to do with you because of me. You have other brothers and sisters. Your houses, your lands are taken away from you, you lose your inheritance because of your faith in Jesus, that happens, written out of wills, what are you going to do? Well, you have another family. Uh, And that isn't just to say it's all get, be prepared to give too in that family as he prospers you. But what a great resource that is. So whether the times are good or whether the times are bad, God is always good and great. Do we have treasure in heaven? 
where we would never complain that the stalls are empty, there's no flocks, there's nothing on the vines, trees. You never complain about that if you have heavenly treasure. Jesus said nothing will corrupt that, nothing will degrade that, nothing will take that away. Are we rich towards God? Like the rich man, the rich fool was not. So I guess all I'm saying in the end is let us trust the Lord to provide for us as he provided for Elijah Elijah and, and Elisha. And um, let's have that same expression of faith that Habakkuk had and we're contemplating. I'm going to overlook these circumstances uh, and I'm going to focus on the Lord to get me through it. Not only get me through it, get me above it. Give me a heavenly viewpoint. And I can walk a heavenly walk even now. Um, so the Lord bless that to us, brothers and sisters. Let's prepare our hearts for hard times. Pray for good times. Nothing wrong with that. Um, but don't put your hope in it. God is sovereign, not us. Not the UN, not the US government. Not the society, not the banks. Uh, whoever we may think is really pulling the strings, you know, that kind of thing. We know who's pulling the strings, quote-unquote, in the good sense, the Lord God Almighty. Let's trust him.